basically started from the premise that I believe that anti-Semitism was uh, first and foremost like a cancer, that it, it has a tendency to spread like a tumor. Uh, and second of all, that it's usually a symptom of a deeper crisis, of a deeper, or sort of, let's call it the, the crisis of liberal democracy. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. So please, as always, remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or to leave us a five-star rating on the podcasting platform of your choice. This is also the last episode of 2020. It's been a great adventure, but do not worry, this is not the end. We will be back next January, so stay tuned and we will be back. Now, for this episode, an old spectre is haunting Europe. In fact, it's as old as Europe itself, but it's been channeled in so many different forms that the latest ones become harder to identify each time. Now, the recent uh, Islamist uh, attack that we saw at a synagogue in Vienna is only the latest example, uh, but the number of anti-Semitic incidents and attacks across Europe has been exploding for a while. Countries like Austria, Sweden, or even Germany are only recently waking up to this uh, new worrying phenomenon, whereas other countries like France, where we're based, have been in its throes since the early 2000s. So what's different about this time's new anti-Semitic wave? Who are the perpetrators? What motivates them? So to cover all these, all these questions, we are very happy, we're delighted actually, to be joined by two leading experts on the field, one in academia and the other one in advocacy. So please remember, leave us a positive rating and review. It'll be a great Christmas treat. Um, you know, on, under the pine tree, and um, it really helps us grow the show. Now, enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency, and thank you so much for joining us. Today, we are delighted to be joined by um, uh, two leading figures in both the study and the fight against uh, an old specter that is again hunting Europe. Uh, a lot of our listeners will be aware on both sides of the pond of the um, ongoing spike in anti-Semitic sentiment across many countries in Europe. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get to talk about the United States to some extent as well, but uh, we are extremely pleased to be joined uh, by uh, Simon Rodin Benzaken, who is the uh, director for Europe of the American Jewish Committee, uh, the AJC, which is uh, as our uh, folks on, on uh, the American side of the pond will, uh, will know the world's largest uh, Jewish advocacy organization that does tremendous work and really important work uh, advocating and informing and educating around the threat of anti-Semitism. So we're very thankful uh, for her uh, for joining us. Uh, she's based in Paris and she handles uh, all of AJC's uh, European uh, work across the continent. And then on the other side of the pond, we're also very pleased to be joined by a Gunther Yikeli, Professor Yikeli is a, a distinguished uh, historian and an, and an academic uh, who teaches at uh, Indiana University in uh, Bloomington. Uh, he is the Erna B. Rosenfeld Professor at the Institute for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism at, at uh, Indiana University. So that's also incredibly germane, the work you do, Professor, uh, to the kind of issues that we want to bring up with the both of you today. And so we're really grateful uh, that you were able to join us. And I wanted to start with something of a general, um, you know, question to sort of get get uh, get uh, get the ball rolling here. There's 
Uh, a lot of people in our audience will be vaguely aware of what we're talking about when we mean anti-Semitism and the recent spike, the return of anti-Semitism to our politics, to our culture. Um, but if, if you were, if you had to give a sort of a, um, uh, a general uh, overview of, of what, it, what this recent spike looks like, uh, how you've, uh, you know, your, your work on it, what, how you would describe it to someone who maybe isn't so much aware, who isn't, uh, doesn't really get their uh, news from sources that do cover uh, uh, these things. So kind of give us uh, a rundown here of, of uh, what the threat is these days, and maybe starting with uh, Simon, and then we'll go over. Sure. Uh, so first of all, thank you very much for having me on. Um, I'll keep it, try and keep it as brief as possible. Um, but um, really, anti-Semitism, I would say, it's, it's not as recent uh, as one might think. Um, it, in France in particular, um, where I think it was, became sort of the most obvious, it really started in the very beginning of the early years of 2000. Um, when you compare, for example, uh, the anti-Semitic acts, um, meaning uh, violent um, hate crimes against Jews, um, in, with the late 90s and the early 2000s, uh, there is a pretty dramatic rise. Uh, you would have about 87, 88 anti-Semitic acts a year in the late 90s, and then you jump basically to the year 2000, 2001, and you would have 350 acts um, a year. Uh, now, that basically means... Uh, you know, more or less on average, one one a day. Um, and this for a population, which in France represents less than 1% of the total um, of uh, French people, meaning 1%. Um, also, you know, in, in the, there have been many people who have been killed. Uh, the first one was uh, Ilan Halimi in 2006. Uh, since then, we've had numerous anti-Semitic anti murders. And this phenomenon has really sort of spread um, across much of the Western European uh, continent, um, the United Kingdom, Belgium, Germany, Sweden. Uh, and then in a different extent, I would say in, in less violence, but nevertheless um, anti-Semitism, uh, to Central and Eastern Europe. Um, so this is basically sort of the situation uh, today. Um, you, when you look at, at the numbers, it's, it's, it's pretty clear whether are, there are the FRA numbers from the Fundamental Rights Agency uh, looking at Jewish sentiment who basically where Jews describe a huge amount of anxiety, uh, where, whether it's about the fact that uh, Jews have left um, uh, parts of the European continent. That's definitely the case in France uh, where Jews decided to leave uh, uh, in, the, in, in the last 10 years in particular uh, to Israel, where Jews have decided to leave to different areas because it's becoming uh, too dangerous. Uh, so all of this basically creates a situation where basically the European, center, uh, European continent is very much affected by, by anti-Semitism and Jews are afraid. There is a sentiment of loneliness and fear. Yes, I mean, <clears throat> the, I, I can confirm this from all the um, factors that we can we can look at. So if we look at statistics that uh, Simone mentioned, if we look at uh, surveys interviewing Jews about their experiences of anti-Semitism, uh, the most recent uh, survey says that 39% of the respondents, Jewish respondents, experienced personally a form of anti-Semitic harassment in the last five years. So that's, these are huge numbers. Unfortunately, we see also in the United States um, some 
um, some of this <clears throat> development um, in the United States, these figures are um, that they became personally target of anti-Semitic remarks in person, 23%. There was a, a survey from last year. So this we have, and we have also in the in the public discourse, what I observe is that it has um, become more central in um, in some among some politicians um, that we hear some anti-Semitic remarks uh, more often. So Daniel Dayan, he has talked about um, a kind of uh, sp spiraling um, dynamic of, of anti-Semitism. And I think that makes it really dangerous. You have it on, uh, on a number of levels and the, um, the violence in words and in, in acts is increasing. So we have seen that also when, when the early uh, 2000s, there was a lot of anti-Semitic violence on streets um, in um, in connection to anti-Semitic uh, rallies. They were labeled as uh, pro-Palestinian uh, or anti-Israel rallies. Um, and within these, or after, often after these rallies, there were then attacks on uh, synagogues or um, other Jewish uh, institutions. And that has um, now uh, spread far beyond like being triggered by anything related to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, so it's more widespread and we have the violence um, that we have in form of terrorism has certainly increased in the, in the past uh, two decades. <clears throat> so we have a number of indicators that show us um, that, um, that there is certainly in a, in, a, in a wave of, of anti-Semitism um, in different forms. And different perpetrators, they express their anti-Semitism very differently. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, we have we see this, this wave. And unfortunately, we see some of the early developments we saw um, in Europe, now also in the United States and in Canada, in somewhat different forms. But we certainly have an increase there as well that translate into um, a feeling of insecurity um, among Jewish communities um, that's, that's first noticed. So even here in this little community in Bloomington, they are now um, closing the doors and talking about security measures where forever they had just an open door policy. And this is across the country. This is a development, of course, that in Europe um, for, uh, for many, many years, um, synagogues had to be protected in some form. Um, this is nothing new for uh, for communities in Europe. But yes, we see an increase in that, um, in the threat in Europe, as we see uh, seen in Germany in the, in the attack last year in Halle. Um, but we see it um, also globally that there's an increased uh, threat against um, Jewish communities worldwide. Um, if I may just follow up very, very quickly on this, it, it's uh, it's really interesting, I think, what, what Gunther just said, because, you know, I remember a time, um, maybe like five or six years ago, um, the, the very famous journalist from The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, um, did a piece on, on anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, 
and and at the time uh, he came to France and he came to he went to 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 uh, to Sweden and to Germany to a few other countries and basically um, you know came to the conclusion that Jews didn't have really a future uh, in Europe because uh, the situation was so terrible and I remember I at the time had a conversation with him where I said to him you know, are you so sure uh, that uh, the, the, the problem of anti-Semitism will not spread elsewhere? Because I basically started from the premise that I believe that anti-Semitism was uh, first and foremost like a cancer, that it, it has a tendency to spread like a tumor. Uh, and second of all, that it's usually a symptom of a deeper crisis, of a deeper, or sort of, let's call it the, the crisis of liberal democracy. Um, and, and, and I think when I asked the question at the time, uh, he probably thought I was crazy. When you fast forward, you know, five, six years, it's very apparent now that, you know, that, that, that the cancer has indeed been spreading. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, uh, anti-Semitic incidents just in Paris and Brussels and Copenhagen, but we are talking about Pittsburgh, we're talking about San Diego, uh, we're talking about incidents in, in, in universities, on campuses, uh, in New York, in, in Los Angeles, in Boston, everywhere. And so it, it's very, very clear, I think, that, that you know, this disease or whatever you want to call it, or this virus, it's a very contemporary, uh, is, sort of, uh, is sort of very clearly spreading. Well, th this is all incredibly useful, you both, and I, I would just direct uh, folks um, to a really interesting essay that you had, Simon, uh, back in the day at The Atlantic, which was drawing uh, lessons from what Europe had been undergoing for, for years. And as you said, one of the interesting points from your response there was that in countries like France, this really tra traces back to the early 2000s. It's by no means a novel phenomenon, but it kind of, it spreads at different speeds, it seems like, right? I mean, uh, a country like uh, Austria, where they just had a really uh, horrible attack on the synagogue. Uh, they may have they may have been less uh, or may have been less of a, a metastasized uh, sentiment and, and and the lessons that we can learn from how countries like France have been dealing with it are really important and they they need to be exported and shared with the, the states which was as I understand it the purpose of your your piece there um, but I, I want to turn to something of a something of a of a more specific question I mean there was there was so much uh, that was just said by you both a lot to unpack obviously the the ways that anti-Semitism is now also kind of permeating our politics. And we can even get into uh, some of the uh, uh, scandals that political parties in the continent have seen themselves enmeshed in, in, in terms of anti-Semitism, but also the way that the uh, uh, Israel, uh, uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict still plays to a large extent uh, in this, this issue. Um, um, Professor Kelly, I wanted to start with you because you've got a very interesting uh, piece of research that you did, I, I believe, recently, where you carried uh, perhaps the, the largest number of interviews on this issue that anyone has ever done. You've uh, been in, in Berlin, Paris, London, where you've interviewed uh, particularly uh, Muslim youths. Uh, it was was the, your focus for, the, for that study. And, and you and I also discussed the work of uh, Marc Elkaldus, right, the Belgian sociologist, who did a somewhat similar work in 2011 in, in the Brussels school system. So my question is, it seems like uh, this phenomenon of anti-Semitism really is um, uh, has really spread massively among communities of Muslim faith, and it it makes the issue so much harder to tackle, doesn't it? Because it seems like you're pitting two communities of faith against one another, and it, it makes it all the more um, um, uh, almost like um, it, it it makes it very um, uh, sensitive, right? It's a very sensitive issue. 
Um, so I wonder, um, maybe can you, uh, Professor, can you uh, give us a little more detail on, on what your studies showed and how you see this um, and, and what you see the connection there between these communities of Muslim faith and anti-Semitism? Or do you think there's, there's perhaps something even uh, deeper at work that tr transcends uh, differences of faith? Yeah, sure. I mean, when we talk we talk about this, and I, um, I think that um, the uh, if we look at the back to the numbers of the um, uh, of the the worst, if the if you want the worst anti-Semitic incidents, um, were the uh, were Jews who were murdered for being Jewish, um, and since the twenty first century, there were um, I counted thirty three of such. Um, murders, and um, that includes in the United States and in, in Europe, and in Europe mostly in France. And in France, um, all of these um, the perpetrators um, were jihadists. In in the United States, they were uh, mostly um, uh, white nationalists. But <clears throat> so you have this clearly the threat of uh, jihadist um, Muslims who um, who attack primarily, um, or one of the main targets um, are Jews and Jewish institutions. Um, and we have, we have seen that in the terror attacks. Um, so of course, then there is the question, what, is, what about the, the Muslim communities in the European countries? And in some countries, we have large Muslim communities in uh, in France, in Germany, and in Britain, uh, mostly um, there are larger uh, Muslim communities. <clears throat> um, of course, <laughs> those Muslim communities uh, only tiny fraction are jihadists, so um, uh, and or even Islamists um, who would be maybe not um, take it, take violent measures, but this is still. Um, minority of the Muslim communities. But what I was interested in, so I did um, uh, field studies in uh, in Berlin and London and in Paris, um, but that's some years back where I just went on the streets and asked um, also young people about their attitudes of, of Jews um, and also their experiences of uh, their own experiences of racism. Um, and so I spoke to, to many Muslims there between the age of 15, uh, 16 and uh, 27. Um, and I found, yes, I found a lot of um, anti-Semitic uh, stereotypes that you, um, some of them you can find also in the non-Muslim population, and some of it is specific. So we have a long history and <laughs> of um, of Christian anti-Semitism, but also of Islamic anti-Semitism. And so I always say that there are at least I mean, there are five main factors that lead to the situation that today in Muslim communities, um, in Europe, but around the world, um, that there is a high level of, of Jew hatred. And uh, so this goes back to um, Islamic sacred texts that can be easily interpreted, um, some of them, uh, some parts of it as um, hating against Jews or saying that Jews are the enemies of Muslims. Um, then there is an Islamic history 
of um, hundreds of years where um, where Jews were discriminated. They had, didn't have the same status and they were looked down upon. Um, then we have Christian exports in the uh, 19th century with colonialism um, and missionaries. Um, most famous case the Damascus blood libel um, that is now, <clears throat> I mean, that is still, we still have um, one of the ministers um, in Syria. He published an, in the 80s a book about it. He was, um, um, and he is still, I mean, this these kind of literature is still widely read. And then we had um, political Islam, of course, with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt um, who pushed um, anti-Semitic, an anti-Semitic worldview that was something um, that is something new in the, or at the time was something new in the Islamic world, um, blaming uh, Jews basically for war against Muslims. Um, we have even today, we have um, the leader Yusuf al-Qaradawi, um, who was um, <clears throat> preacher on Al Jazeera and heads the European Council for Fatwa and Research. Oh, he believes that Hitler uh, was sent uh, as the divine punishment for, for the Jews and advocates for another Holocaust. So, um, and he explicitly uh, explicitly said, I think it was in 2009, um, God willing, the next time this punishment will be inflicted um, by the hand of the faithful, which remains the um, Muslims. So you had this, then you had the Nazi propaganda that... Um, <laughs> Um, was that was pushing this fusion of um, of anti-Jewish sentiment in Islam in Islam with the um, with global conspiracy theories about um, world Jewry, and on top of that they had pan-Arabism um, that <coughs> united. One of the main focus points was their um, hatred against Israel, saying that because there is Israel, we cannot unite as a big um, Arab um, country in unity. So all these five factors have led in, from different directions, if you want, to a situation that um, today um, in many Muslim countries and also then in many Muslim families, um, the word Jew is, is used as an insult. Um, and that there is a norm of of, um, of anti-Semitism, and that many have this understanding that Muslims and Jews are forever enemies. Of course, this is wrong, and we have many counterexamples that show. Well, of course, Muslims and uh, Jews can be perfectly uh, friends, and <clears throat> we see an encouraging development now in in the Middle East, um, most recently with Morocco, um, but. Even, I mean, this is not only um, like since yesterday, literally, but I have Moroccan friends who are Muslim and who visited Israel together with me um, some 10 years back almost. So <clears throat> we do have also, of course, these counterexamples, but all these five factors that I just mentioned, they have led to a situation that is very difficult um, to overcome these uh, kind of stereotypes. So we have seen that in the interviews that we did, and we've seen that now in interviews we're doing with uh, Syrians in Germany, uh, who came in 2014-15 uh, uh, to Germany. We're currently 
um, doing a third wave of interviews to see what has changed um, after five years uh, being in the country. So we're much looking forward to see the results there. But this is this is one of the um, problems there. And then you have these Islamist um, organizations. <clears throat> They're also active in, in Europe. Um, and they radicalize some of the Muslim views with some of these um, baggage that that um, might be there from some of these influences. And um, yeah, point out that, uh, for example, some some verses in the Quran uh, would prove that the Jews are the enemies, um, and gets then even con are able to convince <clears throat> enough enough um, people to make it a threat, a specific threat um, for Jewish communities also in Europe. But of course, we also, I mean, this is in a context where we also see the radical right rising, and in some countries, the populist right. So it's not, <laughs> they're not the only perpetrators, and the only threat that uh, Jewish communities face in, uh, in Europe. And Simon, you, um, your work obviously focuses on, you know, advocating and educating people. Is uh, the issue of, uh, to what extent these, I mean, um, again, it, it seems, although not confined to it, it seems largely concentrated around communities of Muslim faith. Of Muslim, Muslim faith. Is that being a, a hurdle in your work uh, across Europe? Um, yeah, no, first of all, I would say, um... I think uh, Gunter's work and, and, and the academic work uh, that has been done to um, really look at this issue and sort of identify the sources of anti-Semitism, including uh, Muslim anti-Semitism is absolutely key because I think for a very long time, um, one of the problems was that it was extremely difficult to even address the issue. Um, and, you know, to some extent for good reasons, I mean, you know, I would say good sentiment. Um, the fact that I think many politicians didn't want to, um, you know, look at an issue, um, speak about a community that in their minds, and probably rightfully so actually, was um, subject to racism and discrimination themselves. And so didn't want to, you know, create a situation where, um, where, yeah, a min another minority group would be um, identified as being uh, problematic or the culprits. Uh, and so for a very, very, very long time, really, I would say, you know, maybe 10 to 15 years, it was extremely difficult to even address the issue. Um, and sometimes, to some extent, it's, it continues to be complicated. Um, and 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 so to have research that allows you to you know identify clearly the sources not just the far right because this one is relatively easy to to talk on not just the far right um, uh, but also uh, by the way the far left uh, and maybe we will speak about this later on but also uh, but also Muslim and sort of get a better understanding of why where the sources come from what the what the what the component is i think is absolutely key and you know when i think of of the words that were often used in french language and the french have a have a have a facility to invent you know new words like you know the importation of the israeli palestinian conflict or intercommunal tension as if you know uh, there were sort of some sort of you know bizarre equal uh, fights going on between Jews and Muslims on on French soil, uh, just to find a way to avoid 
basically speaking about the fact that that Jews were being attacked, uh, yes, by a minority group that itself is suffering from racism and discrimination, but doesn't exempt, uh, you know, parts of that minority group uh, of being problematic. So, yes, it was extremely complicated to talk about. And again, uh, these studies, I think, are are absolutely clear. I think the other thing is that for many years, people used to believe that, um, you know, basically if the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would disappear, if there was peace between Israel and the Palestinians, the, the anti-Semitism would go away. Uh, that there was a direct link between the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and anti-Semitism in, in Europe. And I think uh, to, to a great extent uh, that has proven itself to be wrong. Yes, it is. I mean, that's very clear, you know, when you have an incident, when you have, uh, I don't know, in 2014, the conflict between Israel and Hamas, it absolutely directly produces uh, violence in the streets of Paris and elsewhere. But it's, it's not only that. I mean, when you look, for example, at the fact that uh, the murder, uh, the murders of Mo um, committed by Mohamed Meha in 2012 uh, by, by Jewish, on Jewish school children, uh, and a teacher itself produced uh, uh, 90 anti-Semitic acts in a very short period of time, as if people considered this to be a heroic incident that needs to be copied. Uh, it sort of proves that it's totally disconnected uh, from from uh, from the Israeli-Palestinian. Uh, it's totally. It is to some extent disconnected from the from the from the from the Israeli-Palestinian con conflict. Or at least it is structural, and it's structural itself. If I may jump in there. So I think it can be relatively easily explained if you, if you think of anti-Semitism as being a mindset in some people, and they get, that is just there in their thinking, but they do not necessarily act on that. But they act when they have trigger moments. <clears throat> so one of these trigger events, when people get triggered, is when they think that um, Israel is uh, is an evil state. That they maybe that is a premise already, but that Israel is now acting, and there's an urgency to do something against this. So then this is just a trigger moment for many people um, to act in anti-Semitic ways. And this kind of used also as an excuse by the perpetrators, but even more importantly, I think by others who um, who um, get let people get away with with this kind of argument. I mean, we have seen this is this is also nothing new. I mean, one of the most powerful um, accusations against Jews that had led to a lot of violence is this blood libel. And if you really believe that Jews would um, abduct children to use their blood in rituals, I mean, this is really evil. So if you if you then if there are then rumors um, going around like this, then this is a trigger moment for uh, for people to act on this. And this is similar in a modernized way. Um, we can see that with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, for most people, really far away, and they don't know much about it. But they have this image of Israel or Zionism in their head that has not much to do with reality. And it's very similar to the image that um, some centuries ago people had of Jews in their head without knowing um, much about Judaism or Jews. Right, because I, I had... Um 
had a question which I think um, Simon touched a little bit about was was the politics of antisemitism because historically, well, in the in the twentieth century, antisemitism was quite clearly associated with a uh, with far right. Uh, but I think something which we've seen over the past generation or so is it has taken a slightly different political color, um, which also makes the issue complicated to talk about because it's not it's no longer the uh, far right we're talking about it's also about elements of a far left um why is it a far left it's 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 a complicated question but we've seen um we've seen the other day the controversy about anti-semitism in the labor party in the uk around jeremy corbyn we see a lot of elements of people coming from the anti-zionist left ending up platforming people who are flat out anti-semitic um so how how did we end up here is it is it you know the old tradition of uh anti-Zionism and, uh, you know, that comes with the association with the Soviet Union and promotion of anti-Zionism worldwide? Or is it, is there something deeper? Maybe we're going back to the kind of perennial anti-capitalist facet of anti-Semitism. How do we explain that the anti-Semitic virus has been spreading among ranks of some parties on the far left um, the past generation or so. So yeah, as you say, I, I would say it's all of the all of the above. Uh, it's really, I think it's a, it's a, it's a product of of uh, it. First of all, it is complex. It's multiple reasons. It's a product, I think, of a long history, uh, you know, which goes back to you know Bruno Bauer, who maintained that the Jews could only politically be emancipated. Uh, from the day when they emancipated themselves from religion, or um, August Bebel, uh, who, would, who was a German politician who spoke of anti-Semitism as a socialism for food. Um, or when you look at the Dreyfus affair, uh, much of the left in, in France was pretty ambiguous, uh, uh, seeing through the affair sort of, you know, a struggle among the elites. And then, of course, the issue of, of, the, of the Stalinists who were, um, you know, who were not outdone in their hatred of the Jews and who identified them with, you know, capitalism, imperialism, and kept repeating that Israel was sort of, you know, an apartheid imperialist state. When you look at, you know, the caricatures even back from back then, when which were clearly, you know, where you can clearly sort of understand the link of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism today. Um, and so I think today that there is there is a leftist anti-Semitism that is 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 sort of a I don't know, a furious uh, detestation of, of Israel, uh, where basically Israel is, is sort of become sort of a, is, is nearly excluded uh, from humanity uh, to some extent, uh, and uh, where you, you sort of have really a sort of a, a very unreasonable, very um, emotional uh, hostility uh, towards, towards Israel. Um, and and you know when when you look at, at some of the the you know whether it's Jeremy Corbyn or, or Jean Luc Mélenchon, and there are some very old sort of anti-Semitic stereotypes that are used that you could could would would actually think that they come from the far right. Uh, you know the issue of control uh, of of uh, of uh, manipulation. Uh, I remember when when Jeremy Corbyn lost the election, uh, when the Labour Party lost the election, Jean-Luc Mélenchon um, here said that all of this was because of, 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 of the Likud uh, and of the, of the chief rabbi of, of, of Britain, uh, who basically you know, manipulated um, British opinion and was basically responsible for, for Jeremy Corbyn's, Jeremy Corbyn's la- a failure. Uh, and on the other hand, for example, someone like Ilan Omar, even, you're in, you know, United States, 
speaks about, uh, you know, it's all about the Benjamins, that the reason why there is a support for, for Israel is basically all because of Jewish money. Uh, you know, that's what it means. So it's, it's actually old sort of, you know, typical uh, stereotypes, um, anti-Semitic stereotypes that, that, you know, persist throughout the ages and that have deep roots, I think, in, in parts of the left. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I can add to that, I think that's, that's all well said. Um, with the, um, there is also a certain demise of the left that we've witnessed intellectually. Um, and that has led to a situation that um, large parts of the left um, have now a kind of, it's more like a cultural left, I would say, that is not really embedded in much theory than um, a very simplified vision of what um, uh, what we what we can read uh, in Mao or Che Guevara's text that make every everything that divide the world into oppressors and oppressed, a very binary um, um, worldview, and not in like classes, uh, economic classes, but in oppressed peoples and oppressor peoples. Um, and then also going further in that with identity politics, um, um, talking about oppressed um, minorities and um, oppressive uh, majorities and always seeing the world in this perspective. And then Jews, of course, they don't fit in there. So um, because then Jews are usually then put in the category of oppressors. Uh, so that's another development that we, we have seen, um, I think, with this with this really demise of the of the left <clears throat> that don't have um, good answers to the to the um, problem that we face today in the world, and also another development, of course, is that um, if you look at anti-Semitism historically, it has usually um, been around um, important questions, topics of the respective era. So. Um, and it has been formulated in that way. And often, I, the way I see it, it's often rather the, um, uh, an indicator of the, of the disease of it. But today, one of the, so, uh, let's say after the Second World War and after the Holocaust, um, we have come into an area where human rights are very important. Um, <clears throat> and so we and racism is as an important issue that should be addressed and i think that's rightly so um but this is how the way that is addressed then and if you have um you have uh, still problems both with racism uh, i would argue less so than uh, 50 years ago but still um and with human rights certainly around the world they're huge issues and this cannot be resolved easily um, and then there is a tendency among some um, to uh, to blame Jews for why this is not going forward. Um, and this is then in the left, they um, identify then um, Jews or the Jewish state as being responsible or being the worst um, perpetrators of white supremacism and racism and colonialism and all the ills of um that we contemporaries see as the ills of, of the world. Uh, so we have this development as well in the in the in the left, and that was uh, a fringe opinion 
in the 60s or until very recently was a fringe opinion, this anti-imperialist view that was always there on the left, but that was rather on the fringes and that has now drifted much more into mainstream. So I, I thought what Simon said about the Dreyfus affair was, was very interesting because one of the reasons the left was divided on this is for a lot of intellectuals on the left, this was not their issue. This was a, a bourgeois affair among the rich, which we shouldn't be talking about. And I think to, to some extent, there's a little bit of that nowadays among, you know, uh, the identi identity politics uh, activists on the left, which is they have this kind of hierarchy of oppressed and oppressors and whatnot. And they're very uncomfortable where they should locate the Jews in that kind of hierarchy. The other day we had the, um, uh, the communist activist Ash Sakar. For those who don't know Ash Sakar, she, she's famous for going on Piers Morgan and telling Piers Morgan, I'm literally a communist, you idiot. Um, but she, she has a good following in, in the UK, and she argued the other day that anti-Semitism is not tied to systemic disadvantage in either the jobs market or the criminal justice system. Therefore, anti-Semitism isn't exactly a form of racism. It's, so you could really see that she wasn't comfortable with this. How do we get anti-Semitism, who is historically one of the deadliest forms of racism, not being considered as a uh, noble form of racism in some ways? How, how, did, how, did, how did that happen? Um uh, listen, I think I think uh, Günther said actually much of it already. I mean, you know, this uh, whatever you want to call it. I think we have difficulty sometimes, sort of, you know, finding names for it. Whether it's you know wokeism or or, or critical justice theory, theory critical race theory, but uh, or post-colonialism. Uh, it's basically the idea of you know. I think it's it's sort of some sort of post-Marxian way in conceiving power. Uh, they are indeed on the one side the oppressed and the oppressor, um, and everything in this sense is 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 seen uh, through the prism of identity. So you have oppressed and oppressor, and then you, the prism is the identity, and you know universalism, liberalism goes out of the window, of course, uh, and you end up with sort of dividing lines of power uh, where you have that are th seen through. A lens of of, of race, uh, of sex, of gender, of sexuality. You have you know different categories of people: the black, the brown, the feminist, the gay, the trans. The and and somehow they intersect. Um, and and you know obviously the the oppressed are all those. And then there are, you have the oppressors who are the who are the white. Um, and 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 in this. Um, for sort of for critical race theories or post-colonialist, Jews are, are are part of the general category of whites, uh, and actually I would say they're even worse than the the general category of white of whites, because not only are they white, but they're also Zionists. And what does Zionist mean? Zionist means racist. Zionist means colonialist in their mind. So they are sort of the ultimate you know, weird category of, 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 of evil whites. And that's, I think, how you can get end up with people like, you know, Linda Sarsour, for example, who says that you can't be a feminist and a Zionist. Or you get students, uh, Jewish students on American campuses who, if they, you know, want to be part of Black Lives Matter, suddenly are forced to sign a statement where they explicit, explicitly refuse or say that they are not Zionists. Um, and it's, it's a weird idea of... Um, 
I don't know how you call it, of purism. There is sort of an urge of purity, of, of, of not having, of, you know, of putting people into these strict systemic <laughs> categories. And Jews in there uh, have to be in one category. And the category they are in is, is you know, is, is the worst. I wanted, to, I wanted to turn to something, like I said, there's something really interesting that I find in both of your, uh, of your, your answers that, um, that, that I think really uh, helps us kind of grapple with the, the current forms of anti-Semitism. I mean, it seems as though even, even as um, this, this um, prejudice, this uh, sort of, you know, uh, sentiment takes on different colorings, it sort of manifests itself in different ways through the ages, and it, it's taken more of a sort of far left uh, coloring recently, and it's got that sort of uh, faith-based coloring, uh, coloring that we spoke about at the start. But it, I wanted to go back to something uh, Gunter alluded to, which is that it, at bottom, on you know, if you if you kind of peel off these surface uh, level manifestations, what's at bottom of all this is the same old irrational prejudice, right? And you find many of the same irrational uh, behavioral patterns among the anti-Semites that you found in I, I would I, I, in the Middle Ages. I mean, uh, Gunter was talking about the blood levels and whatnot. And, you know, the, the 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 fact that you know oftentimes the anti-Semites tend to essentialize the Jewish people as one um, homogeneous block, right? And and once you've once you've done that, it becomes a lot easier to once someone makes an accusation. Centuries ago, it used to be you know the Jews have killed this little boy in this village. Uh, these days, it's totally different things, but it's the same um, ability to kind of um, essentialize the group and, and always expect the, the worst intentions. And, you know, and, and I wonder, um, th there's also a, another uh, issue that I, wanna, that I wanted to get to, but it, it, it's somewhat connected. So feel free to, to, um, to tap into both uh, questions. Um, you know, it seems like um, since anti-Semitism does seem to have some continuity through the ages, although it takes on different colorings. Um, I, I'm thinking about, for instance, uh, Likud's uh, rhetoric. Um, if, if you look at Israeli politics, one of their main kind of uh, driving themes is that there, there's always been a, a threat to the Jewish people through the ages and that the state of Israel is the response to that. But even after setting up the state of Israel, the threat isn't over. Uh, and, and, you know, the Jewish people need to be uh, you know, on their, you know, on their heels and they, they need to be um, alert. Uh, and it's something you may want to, you may share uh, to some extent. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, it certainly, if you believe in the, the theory of transmutation, it takes on different forms, but at heart, it's the same irrational uh, pattern. But my question is, do you think, I mean, like uh, Simone was saying, um, the, the, the Zionism and the, the kind of the Israeli right uh, has in some ways, uh, perhaps make things worse in the way that we across the West uh, see um, Israel, perhaps if that, that's a view you can, you can take. Uh, but how do you think those two interact? I mean, um, you know, is there any connection between Israeli politics and Likud and anti-Semitism? Is that what the anti-Semites have in mind, really, when they... Uh... I mean, I, I don't think that the anti-Semites are really concerned much about what Jews do, what they don't do. Uh, they take things... Um, usually out of context, and then make with that, uh, make that into the image that they have of Jews or the state of Israel anyway. So what I, what I, what I see that you're right, there is a kind of continuity um, over, the, over the ages. Of course, I, I don't believe that 
necessarily there has to be anti-Semitism. <laughs> this is, uh, I mean, other parts of the world have proven that this is not a necessary development, and we have seen also in uh, in, in in many parts today and in the past that it is possible not to think in anti-Semitic ways. So, but what we've seen today, we, I mean, the main the main three uh, sources today of anti-Semitism is the um, the um, are the Islamists, um, then the uh, political right, uh, far right, and uh, the political left. And they phrase their problems, I mean, the problems they see as most urgent, um, um, they phrase that in a way that they then project the responsibility of why these problems cannot be solved or why these problems are so big on Jews. So if you, if you take the... Um, uh, the radical right, uh, a big theme today is what they call the uh, great replacement theory. So that means the, the idea that um, in, um, in Europe and in, in North America, um, the societies, uh, white societies are under threat because there are too many immigrants coming and replacing them. So they see that as the most important threat and they that's also drifts into the popular populist right, by the way, and uh, so they blame then Jews for that. So then that makes sense. This uh, slogan in in Charlottesville, Jews will not replace it. Us, they don't mean that actually Jews will be the majority. They mean that Jews are organizing the immigration. They're responsible for that, and that was also the rationale of the killer of Pittsburgh. That's why he thought justified to kill praying uh, Jews in a synagogue uh, because they are responsible in his views of bringing all the immigrants and replacing the white race. Uh, so we have these kind of ideas in the, in the, on the right. We have it on the left saying um, human rights, this is the most important uh, thing and who's responsible for violating, violating all these human rights. And uh, even in the United States, even during this summer, during this Black Lives Matter uh, movement, there was among this, in this movement, some parts, they blamed the police violence on training that some American uh, police officers got in Israel. They said there they learned the violence. So they <laughs> project this. And if you see, look at the Islamists, the Islamists, they think that the Islamic societies, tradition and so on, is under threat. And then they see the Jews behind that. So you have you have these projections and this is this has nothing to do with actual Jewish communities or what Israel does or doesn't. And what I think what the real danger then is in this kind of thinking, and if that drifts too much into the mainstream, is that actually the problems that we do have in societies, they do not get solved. They get just projected onto Jews. And um, this is an outlet for uh, sometimes even violence against Jews, but it doesn't solve any of the problems that these societies do have, um, not maybe in the form that these um, these groups that I just described think about it. But of course, we do have problems with human rights. We do have problems with integration and immigration that we need to um, look at. And we also um, maybe have to think about um, what, what um, uh, ways in which um, um, people can still live in, in, in forms of um, living their religion in a way that fits into the modernized world, um, which cannot uh, go back to the centuries uh, earlier 
um, where in I'm now talking about the Islamic world where there was a clear hierarchy between Muslims and non-Jews and non-Muslims. So this is there's no going back. So that needs to be somehow uh, thought anew. So we have there are problems, but they are not tackled because it's just projected onto Jews. Yeah, if I'll try and add a few things. Um, first of all, yeah, I, I think um, you know when you look at anti-Semitism throughout the ages, it, uh, it, it's sort of the hate that keeps on giving. Uh, and that does indeed sort of change and change faces and change masks. Um, but I think there are moments in history when, uh, you know, when it, it, it appears clearer um, and when it, it, it sort of, you know, it becomes violent. Or, 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 and, and I think to some extent, um, that's why I mentioned earlier on, you know, the, sort of why I think because we, we are currently sort of in a, in a crisis of our, of our liberal democracies, you know, we're, that, that I think it is at this particular moment that, that anti-Semitism um, uh, appears. And um, actually, um, I don't know if, if you've read it, I think it hasn't been translated yet into English, but um, there is a French rabbi called Delphine Orvilleur. Um, she wrote a book about sort of... Um, of of, of anti-Semitism throughout the ages. And she looks at how the Bible, how rabbis uh, throughout the centuries have looked and interpreted anti-Semitism. And for her, and I think I agree with her, uh, the hatred of the Jews is sort of a reflection of the uprooted identity after the destruction of the temple by the Romans. So let me explain. The eyes of the other people for whom... Um, there is, there is, you know, they exist as a, as a whole, as a totality. Um, the, the Jew is this, um, you know, this weird identity that is fluid, uh, that, is, uh, that is in the diaspora, uh, that is always going towards something, that is never sort of absolute, that is never uh, entire. And so uh, the Jew is, is sort of the, the, the absence, uh, the dirty uh, whole and um and so from her perspective and that's how what she says the rabbis have interpreted throughout the ages the, the that makes the jews sort of the scapegoat sort of for the identity anxieties for the this yeah for the for the fears of identity in moments of crisis uh when when, when you know people are looking for uh purity can people looking to become whole again, then this weird identity of Jews that are always sort of fluid and different and, and not really visible um, um, makes it the perfect scapegoat. And I think this is to some extent what we are going through uh, right now. And actually, when you look at the difference between anti-Semitism and racism, um, you know, the, the black, the Arab is visible. Uh, you know, you, you can see him, he, is, uh, he or she is inferior to you. You hate her. The Jew is different. The Jew is invisible. The Jew is this, this weird thing that you, you don't really know whether he is or he isn't. That's why you have to put a star, a yellow star, uh, on, on the jacket. It's this weird thing that you have to qualify. And, and so I think this is, this is, again, at a moment of crisis, and you know, there is without a doubt our societies, our uh, liberal democracies throughout the world are going through a crisis. 
um, these these identities, when we when people are looking to become pure, or people are coming looking to become, you know, a whole, the Jew becomes the the perfect scapegoat. So to some extent, I'm not. I I have to say I'm I'm not entirely in disagreement uh, with with the Israelis who say you know anti-Semitism has existed throughout the ages and it will probably uh, uh, exist to some extent. Now. Just one tiny little thing where I, I sometimes have an issue is, is when Israeli leaders come to France or to other places uh, and tell European Jews that they have no place here anymore. Because, um, you know, to a, to a great extent, what we are trying to do is to try and get European governments to understand, recognize and combat anti-Semitism. Now, when Israeli leaders come and say, you don't have a place here and at the end of the day, you should come to Israel. Um, that's obviously problematic because, you know, suddenly we, we, we don't, we are not, we are not French anymore. We're not German anymore. We're not, you know, Belgian or whatever anymore. We become again, this identity, you know, that at the end of the day, you know, can go, should just go away. Um, so, so this is what the issue where I sometimes have a problem with the Israelis, uh, you know, as, as, as favorable I am. And I, I think as important it is for Jews to know that Israel is there and that in case of, you know, emergency, we, we have somewhere to go. And what fundamentally differentiates the, today from, you know, the 30s. Uh, at the same time, I find it problematic. Ties in really well with what I wanted to ask to wrap this up, because there's been a lot of depressing articles on how. Um, French banlieue, but also of the European suburbs, have essentially been deserted by Jews over the past decades. And many of them decide to do, not all of them, because a fair share who decide to do their aliyah to Israel, they decide to immigrate to Israel to become Israeli citizens. But from a pure security standpoint, it does not seem obvious to me that going to Israel would make you better off because there's obviously a lot of terrorist attacks on a regular basis. Um, but this makes me think that maybe there is not only a, a sense of physical insecurity but maybe a larger feeling of cultural insecurity where jews feel that they're not just physically in danger but also the culture around them has become threatening and unwelcoming do you have any thoughts on that but, um yeah absolutely i mean i think um one of the big problems is that for you know 10 15 20 years uh, jews felt that there is a, a, that there is a sort of a sense of um solitude uh i most Jews are passionately French, passionately German, passionately whatever, wherever they are. But when there is a feeling that, you know, at the end of the day, they are being abandoned by the state, they are being abandoned by their fellow citizens, that, you know, you have, you know, the number of times I remember, whether it's in 2006, Ilan Halimi, when he was killed, where, you know, I would look around and I would see mostly, you know, uh, fellow Jews uh, marching in the streets of Paris, um, and, you know, we didn't have millions of people uh, in the streets. Um, uh, there is a, a, a feeling of, 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 of loneliness. And I have to say what I'm, you know, probably more concerned about is not so much the Aliyah, meaning not so much Jew, Jews leaving to Israel because, yeah, you know, Jews are leaving, but they're not, you know, in masses. We're not seeing an exodus. What I'm more concerned about is um, the internal Aliyah, meaning that Jews are leaving neighborhoods. Uh, because their life has become impossible uh, and at the same time the internal aliyah is also in people's minds meaning the question that we always have is do we have a future here uh, and is there a sufficient you know national solidarity uh, for us as citizens 
uh, or not. And I think this is very problematic. I may illustrate this with an anecdote. Um, of course, I mean, the um, the harassment, physical harassment or so is, is bad in some areas, but in other areas, it's not so bad and people live a perfectly um, happy life. Um, but one of my colleagues, when I was working in, in Paris, one of my academic colleagues, he told me um, when coming back from a trip to Israel that he would not tell anybody else from his colleagues that he went to Israel whenever he goes to Israel, because then he, he does not want to face all these critical questions because he just went to visit some relatives for some family celebration um, and came back. And so he faced then questions when he was telling this to his academic colleagues. Uh, he was facing critical questions how he could support such an evil state by just visiting his family. So he would just not tell anybody anymore. And so you can do that for a while. You can, you can even in uh, sometimes maybe hide your Jewish identity, what a lot of uh, Jews do in Europe now. They try to hide their identity. Um, but this is not a this is not a great um, life usually if you have to hide who you are. So that leads to a situation that people like um, try to find other ways how to either be in in uh, in a country where they can express this freely or to move in some areas or some circles where they can do that um so that that of course adds to that and this was this not taking seriously anti-semitism we see that from the beginning and there was even a very early uh, murder uh sebastian selam uh, in 2003 and that was dismissed. And the, the murderer, he was quoted as saying by other neighbors, I killed um, my neighbor and now I go to paradise. So he was apparently influenced by some jihadist thought, but he was um, declared deranged. So that was then dismissed. This cannot be anti-Semitic if somebody's deranged and uh, crazy and mad. And then <clears throat> this... Uh, this was um, not really addressed. And we see that um, more and more today, even into intellectual like discussions, whenever there is an accusation of anti-Semitism, then often the it doesn't it doesn't that get discussed what is the anti-Semitic content, what somebody said or not, but the accusation itself is then uh, attacked, saying this is shutting down uh, discourse. So we we see that in, in Germany, there was a, a big debate about a, um, a professor member who uh, was was not really disinvited to give a uh, to give a, um, a talk at a, at, a, at a festival because the festival was cancelled because of the, uh, the pandemic. Um, but he might have been disinvited because he said some deeply um, anti-Zionist and I would say anti-Semitic uh, things and this festival was uh, sponsored um, by the government and the government then had uh, questions about it but so then that the debate is more not on what this person actually said but the accusation of anti-Semitism is made as a problem and we've seen that also in Britain for a long time um, David Hirsch he has um, even uh, given that a name, he said this is a Livingston uh, formulation, 
where you where you say then the problem is really that um, that this accusation of antisemitism is made and this is made in bad faith and um, when Jews accuse somebody um, of um, of antisemitism this is this is in bad faith and that shows kind of the the control the the wish for suppression that um, um, that Jews want to put on on non-Jews so. This is also part of the problem um, that we are facing that makes it difficult to address um, effectively the problems of anti-Semitism. This has been an incredibly wide-ranging discussion and, and uh, we really hope our audience will come away from it uh, with, with a better understanding both of the historical kind of underpinnings of, the, of this new worrying trend, uh, how it currently manifests itself and how, uh, and how important the work of organizations like AJC, but also Kuhnfer's uh, work on the academic sphere, how important it is that we have people doing these things so that we are. Good to have uh, this conversation. I thought it was a fascinating conversation too. Um, there's one concept I, I wanted to touch on, but we didn't quite have time, which is the idea that um, I borrow for Bernard-Henri Lévy, and essentially, it's the idea that when when Jews are leaving neighborhoods, when Jews are leaving countries, uh, it's bad in itself. Uh, but it's also it's also a kind of larger uh, how can I say larger signal about the way society is going. You know, it's very much a cannery in the coal mine situation. If if um, if a cannery dies then it means that um, the entire atmosphere is becoming toxic. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, all the Jews that left the, the banlieue and whatnot being kind of a uh, first first signal of how a radical Islam, for example, had been progressing in these neighborhoods. That's fair. That's, that's why all the Jews had been leaving progressively. Um, so I think, I think that's an interesting concept you have to keep in mind, is that anti-Semitism is awful in itself, of course, but it's also a kind of uh, warning for a larger larger toxic trends in a country yeah that's a, that's a really good point and um and um and I, it really made me think i mean one of the things i i like the most is is that um you know when we launched the conversation we kind of framed uh the rise of uh the the, the rise of uh, anti-semitism as mostly a recent phenomenon simon uh, very quickly said look if you look at a country like france this really goes back to the early 2000s and you were talking about the BHL there. And uh, I was also, I was watching a documentary recently that aired some years ago, but it was about, since you asked them kind of the, the problem in working class uh, French neighborhoods and in like the Parisian banlieue where you, you've seen like all of these uh, working class Jewish uh, communities um, either, you know, uh, leave elsewhere or else, you know, their kids are leaving to Israel. The, the, the documentary that I watched was about Sarcel, where I think there was there's also been um, like several uh, attacks, or there's there's been uh, there's been some level of violence, so it's it's caught attention. Um, so I'm glad we were able to kind of uh, point to cases where this is, you know, traces further back. Uh, and, and I think another point that was really interesting in the conversation was. Uh, was kind of uh, exposing the uh, very uh, the, the the somewhat deep divisions within uh, Jude well not Judaism uh, but Jewish communities worldwide uh, themselves. I mean, you know, uh, Simon was also very outspoken uh, in in, in uh, criticizing uh, the, the Israeli right uh, when uh, you know they, they, they just to, to suit their political purposes. A lot of time they campaign on 
uh, pointing fingers at Europe and saying, look, Jews are no longer safe in Europe. And it kind of helped them politically at home to, uh, to uh, drum up uh, fears of a kind of a global, um, a global um, onset of, of uh, anti-Semitism that, that, you know, is going to kind of make the state of Israel uh, more necessary than ever. And as much as I think that is true, uh, that, that we are seeing the most worrying uh, spike in anti-Semitism really ever since um, the, the 40s. Um, I, you know, I think I think you have to look at these political divisions and, uh, and you know, and, 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 and Jews worldwide have to come together around a shared uh, commitment to their security, whether they live in Israel or elsewhere. And it hasn't, it doesn't have to run along kind of partisan lines between, you know, Likud and the more progressive, uh, a share of, 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 uh, of uh, the Jewish community worldwide, but I thought I, I thought it was a really interesting conversation as well. And I think a lot of it's it's perhaps out of all the ones that we've done, it's perhaps the one that is going to feel most uh, useful, and that a lot of our audience will uh, come out of it uh, knowing a lot more than they did going. going yeah, Green. Speaking of a retrospective, perfect timing here, Jorge, because um, this is going to be it for 2020. This is our last episode. Uh, this has been a tremendous adventure because we started our very first episode on the 1st of October and the response has been amazing. We've had uh, uh, plenty of reviews. We've had downloads from, I think, 55 countries across the world, um, you know, from from Singapore to Chile, from uh, South Africa to South Korea. So it's been a tremendous adventure. We will be back in January. Um, we will be back with a few surprises. I'm not going to give you that many hints, but there's going to be... Uh, there's going to be new ambitions and uh, format will be um, the same, but there's going to be some complementary um, products coming with um, with a podcast. So keep tuned for that. Uh, we're coming back in, in January after Christmas break. Um, and uh, we hope you very much enjoy your, your Christmas break. And we all wish you, we all wish ourselves a happy new year, to be honest, after what we lived in, in 2020. And we can't, we can't wait to be back in 2021. So until then... See you next year.